We are doing podcast. Okay, let's do it. Hello and welcome to another episode of Baseball Barbecue. I am Jake Mintz, one of your two co-hosts. That is Jordan Schusterman. Jordan, what can the fine folks of the baseball following world expect on this podcast? We've got two great conversations in this episode. First, we're going to talk to our ringer friend and colleague, Mr. Ben Lindbergh, about actually what's going on in baseball lately. Because if you haven't seen, uh, it's gotten a little it's gotten a little bumpy, this, uh, this ride on our, our journey back to having baseball played. Um, so we checked in with Ben, who is far smarter than us, who could update us on the status of when baseball could be back or not back. Now, I sh- we should mention a disclaimer here. The news is happening very quickly. We're getting statements from the PA and MLB left and right. So if this pod comes out and there is more news, we're sorry. We're just trying to, to you know put these pods out as, as quickly as we can because we know that this is an ever-evolving story. But enjoy that conversation with Ben about where we are and how we got here. And our second conversation was with Rennell Brooks-Moon. Rennell is the PA announcer for the San Francisco Giants, truly one of the iconic voices in the PA industry in the world of baseball. Uh, Rennell talked about her experiences as a black woman uh, in a sport that traditionally has had very few black women, uh, especially in positions of prevalence and power like she has. Uh, she also touched on why the history of the Negro Leagues is so important to her and uh, her thoughts on the current moment in American history. We also did talk about Jared Saltalamacchia for a quick second. Both of those conversations were insightful. Both were interesting. We hope you enjoy both of them. And we will talk. We will talk to all of y'all later. Ringer colleagues and the star of ESPN's 30 for 30, uh, long gone summer, Ben Lindbergh. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Hey guys, great to be here talking to you about Major League Baseball at this uplifting time for the sport. Before we hop into all of that not fun stuff, Ben, how many home runs did you hit in 1998? (laughs) I probably did hit maybe an inside the parker at that time. I think I don't think I had over the fence power because I was only 11 years old, but I watched a lot of home runs being hit that year. That's good. Well, I'm not going to go and advocate saying that you should have been taking what McGuire and Sosa were taking at age 11, <laughs> but uh, I enjoyed your cameo uh, in the doc. Um, but Thank we are you. not going to talk about uh, Long Gone Summer. We are going to talk about uh, Long Gone Summer 2020 edition, yes. uh, which is um, we have we have come to a very, very dark and confusing and weird place in uh, in this in this baseball calendar. Um, and I guess since we have not actually covered this uh, on Baseball Barbecue yet, uh, we launched this podcast in the midst of the of the pandemic, but we have not been covering very much of the news. We thought you would uh, be a good person to come on and help us kind of catch up on what's been going on and where we stand now. So, Ben, I think there's no better place to begin than with the three uh, fateful words that we have been seeing tossed around Twitter the March Agreement. What in the world was the March Agreement? <laughs> I thought you were going to say when and where, another three fateful <laughs> words that we've been hearing a lot. But yes, it's in a sense, nothing has happened over the past few months. And in another sense, a lot has happened. It's just that a lot has happened to get us to this point where no baseball has been played, at least here. So the March Agreement was an agreement that MLB and the Players Association came to in late March that at the time seemed like a positive sign. It seemed like the two sides had ironed out some issues issues in the event that a season could be played, that the pandemic would allow a season to be played. It seemed like they had more or less hashed out what that would look like, how it would work. And it turns out that nothing that the two sides thought they had settled at the time or that we thought they had settled at the time was actually settled, according at least to one of the two sides. So the big dispute here seems to be about what that agreement said or didn't say about a season that would be played in the event that there would be no fans in the stands. So MLB is essentially saying that that agreement was for a regular baseball season. So if fans could come back and be in the ballpark, which even at that time seemed pretty optimistic to think that that could happen. And on the other hand, 
there was something in the agreement that said essentially something like if there's a season played without fans or if that's a possibility, we'll get back together and we'll talk about something. We'll have a further discussion or negotiation about that. And the big dispute seems to be about whether that agreement settled the matter of prorated pay, whether players would be paid their regular salaries prorated for the number of games played in that season. The players said essentially that the March agreement settled that, that prorated salaries were agreed to, and the only unknown was how long the season would be and when it would start, whereas MLB is maintaining that, no, we never agreed to that. That was open to a a subsequent negotiation that we would have once we decided to play a season without fans. So that's the big point of dispute here. Did they actually agree to prorated salaries in the event of a season without fans or not? Woohoo! <laughs> a lot of, lot of. I mean, this is exactly what we want to be talking about in June. <laughs> I know, it's riveting season. stuff, really. The, yeah, the yeah. legal language in this agreement that none of us has actually seen. So that's that's like the extra <laughs> layer of it, right? Like it's not only like a fraught future of the sport, but it's also like incredibly sticky to talk about, right? And like difficult to discuss on top of it already being just like eye rollingly. <laughs> like mind-numbingly annoying. Exactly. I would now ask you, Ben, let's just talk about what the hell happened yesterday, which was Monday, June 15th. Do you want to just quickly review that? Sure. So in the past several weeks, there have been a few offers exchanged back and forth, right? Where essentially MLB has continued not to offer prorated pay for however many games they've offered. It seems like they decided we are willing to spend this much on player payroll. And so we will either offer more games and less pay for each of those games or fewer games and more pay, but essentially coming out to the same amount. The Players Association has consistently said that's a non-starter. It's either prorated pay or not. Like, we already agreed to prorated pay. The question is how many games we're going to play. So we've had these offers flying back and forth. Now, last week, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, guaranteed that there would be a season. He guaranteed that we will play. He said 100% likelihood of a season happening. Now, over the weekend... The Players Association rejected the final offer, the most recent offer from MLB, and essentially said, just tell us when and where we're playing, because the March agreement did give MLB the right to impose a season, assuming the health and safety protocols were agreed to. They can say, well, we're going to play a 50-game season. We're going to play a 48-game season. They can just tell the players to show up and start playing. But the players have the right to file a grievance that would be decided by an arbitrator in the future, saying essentially that MLB did not make a good faith effort to play as many games as possible because the players have consistently proposed playing more games than MLB has proposed. So over the weekend, Tony Clark, the Players Association, said, well, we've reached an impasse here. Just start the season. Tell us when we're going to play. And Instead of saying, okay, we're going to do a 50-game season, here's when it starts, here's when you report to spring training again, MLB said, well, actually, no, maybe not. Maybe we won't play a season because we're worried about this grievance that you're threatening to file. So MLB now has said that they will not agree to start the season unless the players agree to drop the possibility of filing a grievance, which is not really something that you would do if you had no fear at all that you had done nothing wrong. (laughs) I was going to say, like, it's almost conceding, like, don't file this because we're not feeling great about winning. Yes. You know, and so that is already a concerning a uh, bit of context when you think about like what they agreed upon in March versus what they didn't in an agreement that we all haven't seen, right? So right. that could be a situation where they know like, uh, maybe they probably would win if we <laughs> take yeah. a look at that. And uh, so that's that is that's kind of how we got here. At the very least, the March agreement seems not to have been clear enough on this point because there are certainly reasonable reasons to disagree on what it actually said about prorated pay. There are many people who think that the player's side is stronger, that they have a better case. But at the very least, it was too vague. They did not actually agree on what they were agreeing to, which has caused these problems a few months down the road. And so, yeah, the the players have a right to go before an arbitrator and decide whether MLB made a, a good faith effort here to play as many games as possible. And the fact that MLB is saying, well, you have to waive that right 
does sort of suggest that they don't feel great about what that arbitrator would find. I would say compared to other instances of labor strife, it seems as if the public more than usual has sided with the players. Um, the, the PR battle seems to be just kind of skewing in that direction. Right. The players are galvanizing behind the idea of we want to play baseball while we have reports from Ken Rosenthal and others that the, there are owners who do not want to play baseball. How do you view that dichotomy playing out as we move forward? That is one of the most interesting aspects to this, because you look back at these previous disputes, whether it's 94, 95 or 2002, when we came close to a strike, consistently the public supports ownership. And there are many reasons for that. It, it could just be that we know what the players make and we don't know what the owners make because their books are closed. And people say, well, they're athletes. They're playing a game. I would go out there and play for free. So the fact that these guys won't play for X millions of dollars Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it does seem this time like the players have really curried support, curried favor, and that the owners have misplayed their hand. And, you know, I don't know how much that actually affects the negotiations. It's interesting to me. And I think the players have a good message here. They're sticking to the message of we want to play. And yes, there are health risks here. And we are taking our own health into account here when we're deciding whether to play the season for less than we are entitled to be paid. And, you know, that's another aspect of this that resurfaced again this week is that I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there's still a pandemic that is actively going on right now. And there's an open question about whether you can play this season safely in any event, even if there is an economic agreement. And in a way now, we've gotten to the point, I think, where even if the season is called off because of COVID or if MLB says we're calling off the season because of COVID, people are going to question their motives and say, is that actually why they're doing this? Or is it just that they weren't happy with the economics and now they are pinning this on COVID? So there was a leaked report in the AP earlier this week saying that several players or team personnel have tested positive for COVID and we don't know who. And it's not particularly surprising that someone has, given that so many other hundreds of thousands of people have. But that's another thing. You look at the timing of that and you start to wonder, well, are they just going to trot that out as an excuse? And it may very well be a legitimate excuse, which in a way makes this whole situation even more frustrating. Because if they had come out from the beginning and said, look, we can't play safely. It's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. Our players' safety takes top priority. And we're looking at states and the COVID rates and the case rates are still rising or plateauing and we just can't do it. I think we'd be disappointed, but we would understand and no one would hold it against baseball. No one would say, I'm not a fan of this sport anymore because they put the player's safety first. But at this point, they've kind of poisoned the well, where even if that ends up being the stated reason, you have to question whether that is actually in owners' hearts, because we know that there are owners who do not want baseball to be played this year. That is, to me, I'm sorry, that is just the craziest part that personally, like as a fan, ticks me off the most, right? Like you say that out loud and it you say it like a fact, Ben, right? But like, say it again. The owners of the baseball teams <laughs> don't want the baseball. Right. That's right. nuts. That doesn't that doesn't compute. That's like what? Are we, no one's making you own a baseball team. No, <laughs> this is no, no right, one is forcing like, you to do this. Like, it's not like fucking jury duty. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like oh man, oh this year, this year I have to own a baseball team. Oh man, uh, the horrors. Right. I enjoy yeah. jury duty personally, but yes, I, I am wow, pro it's the most Ben Lindbergh thing ever. Incredible. being played. <laughs> Look, it's our constitutional duty and uh, I, I enjoy dispensing justice. But I think that, yes, I am in favor of baseball. We all like baseball on this call. And yeah. I'd like to that? think that owners like baseball, but it, yeah. it gets hard to <laughs> believe that at certain times because clearly there are owners who are putting profit first. And 
Again, right. you know, we've heard various owners come out and, and cry poor over the past week or so and try to persuade us that owning baseball teams is not a profitable exercise, which goes against all that we know about the rising revenues in baseball and the rising franchise values and the fact that billionaires seem very eager to buy into baseball teams anytime there is an opportunity. So that on its face is pretty tough to swallow. And the and idea Bill that- Bill DeWitt just bought Eva exactly. Longoria's house. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> so it's pretty hard to believe that when owners are trying to sell you that, oh, we have no money, which again, if you have any knowledge of baseball economics going back decades or centuries, that's been a pretty consistent message. And it has often turned out not to be true or at least not backed up because, again, we don't have access to the numbers. And the Players Association has said, if that's the case, if you're claiming that we're actually going to be losing money by playing baseball games this year, show us the money or show us the lack of money, right? Put the numbers out there and teams don't do that. And so it's hard to take those claims seriously if, if they aren't going to support them let alone the level of tone deaf it takes during this time in mm -hmm. our country of right. you know, unemployment and everything to be like, I'm slightly less rich than you think I am. I, <laughs> right. Please feel bad for me. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's the part. And right, the owners, you know, our sport, you know, there's some other sports that have owners that are more public facing. In baseball, we have some owners that we, we know their faces, we hear them talk sometimes, and other of them are just in the back either spending a lot of money or not spending a lot of money and, you know, hiding behind the team. Um, so it, it is weird to gauge now where we're hearing these reports like they don't want baseball. And then we're like, well, wait, who are these people? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like, what? what? They're, they're the ones in charge of my favorite baseball team. What's going on? Yeah. Um, and I, I tend to downplay the idea that baseball is dying because we've heard mm -hmm. that refrain for right. <laughs> almost the entire history of baseball. And it, it hasn't been true to this point. But this does really feel like an existential threat to a, a greater extent than it usually does. And granted, in some ways, the circumstances make this more understandable. I mean, this is happening because of this unique circumstance with the pandemic. And if that had not happened, we would not be in this situation. We might be in this situation a year later because there's a CBA negotiation coming up, by the way, which means that we will not be done with any of this in the near future, even if they are able to resolve something and play this season, this will all be back. The, blood, the bad blood will linger. But I think the fact that this is happening now against the backdrop of everything that's going on in the country, again, if this were just about health and safety, that's one thing. But just the optics and even Manfred, who seems to be contributing as much as anyone to how bad this looks for baseball, he admitted that this looks terrible for baseball. And particularly if other sports come back, and are able to play, and you have the possibility of the NBA schedule migrating so that it overlaps with baseballs permanently in the future, that does not look great either. So if you're in the situation where baseball is the one sport that could not get its act together and failed to get its act together in the most messy way possible, I think that looks terrible. And you look back at the precedent of 95, let's say, and attendance goes down by 20% or so, and then gradually bounces back to the point that eventually those losses were made up again. But if we're in a situation where the economy is tanking and where other sports are doing well and there are many more entertainment options out there, I don't know that you can count on baseball to bounce back the way it did. So it's a, a really... Very anxiety-inducing situation for the sport that we all love and we want to see do well, but it's hard to be upbeat about Major League Baseball right now because they are seriously screwing this up. Yeah, and so, okay, so now we have to get to like, not even prediction, but like, we're, we're moving forward here. I know yesterday we just heard our own commissioner say he's not confident that there's going to be baseball. And by the way, speaking of optics, like, even if there is a great reason for him to go back on what he said five days ago, it doesn't matter. It just looks and sounds ridiculous to go. Especially that. on on yeah. a pro on like a, a a TV show on ESPN called The Return to Sports. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And right. one of those sports is very clearly not returning. Yeah. So this is why you should yeah. never guarantee anything. You can exactly. never make me say right. anything is a hundred percent. But this but is like so, we're about to see Jordan. What if Joe Namath lost the Super Bowl? <laughs> right. So so okay. So with that context in mind. I do think I'm sure there were a lot of people that saw the incident and be like, wait a minute, if the commissioner is saying we're not, I'm not covering we're going to have baseball, well, then 
we're not having baseball. Like, I'm sure there are a lot mm -hmm. of fans that saw that, but let's try to stay half barely optimistic, even though, like you said, it's hard to do that. Um, I don't think it necessarily means that for sure. But where do we sort of go from here? There's we could be there could be news within hours of us recording this, releasing this podcast, whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, what is the next course forward? Because it seems like the players are just going to kind of force the owners to implement the season and kind of call their bluff here. But what, how do you think this this plays out roughly? Because yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that the owners expected the players to hmm. call their bluff, and I don't think they're accustomed to the players having united front like this and having social media so that they have a platform to put their message out to the public directly. I mean, they've been united in the past, but they haven't necessarily had the conduit to the public that they have now. So I think... There are a couple ways this could go. A, it's possible that this is a stalling tactic, and some people have accused the owners and Rob Manfred of that, that essentially they've decided, well, we want to play a 50-game or so season, and we can't impose that now because there's still time for a longer season. We could conceivably play a 60-something or even a 70-game season now and not have it go beyond, say, the end of September. And so if they were to say, well, let's start a 50-game season right now, then an arbitrator could say, well, they didn't make their best effort to play as many games as possible. So it's one possibility that Manfred is just stalling for another week or two so that by the time they eventually say, okay, fine, we'll start the season, there will be no option to play more than 50 or games. Which again, it's like which, this Machiavellian... How is that worth it? Like you've horrible. already sunken so low. And I the know. craziest part now yeah. is like, that might be be the best case scenario yeah like that's kind of what i'm rooting for <laughs> yeah. in this really <laughs> sad way right i mean it's hard to imagine that the players association is just gonna say fine we cave we'll do whatever you want right. let's play a season You're like not gonna nor, go this long this nor far. should they you know yeah. I, and i think it's possible that MLB that the owners could come back with another offer, which again, I think makes them look a little weak because they made the most recent offer. So they'd essentially be negotiating against themselves, which I'm sure they don't want to do. And it seems like there's a lot of division within the owners' ranks too. Like, you know, maybe a, a third of the owners, let's say, don't actually want to play baseball. And Rob Manfred, much as everyone wants Rob Manfred to go away, he's essentially a mouthpiece for the owners. He works for the owners. He's not this impartial figure who's just trying to look out for the fans or, or act in the best interests of baseball. He is representing the owner's interests, and maybe his messaging has not been great. Maybe he's done a bad job of kind of corralling the owners and getting them all to agree on something. But he is essentially doing the owner's bidding. And so if they were to replace him with someone else in the future, it'd probably be someone else who was doing things that were equally as galling to everyone else. And with the CBA negotiations coming up, I think that's probably unlikely anyway. So it's possible that we just wait a week or two, that this is just posturing, that Manfred saying that he was 100% confident in a season was sort of bluffing, was sort of hoping that the players would say, okay, fine, he can impose a season, we'll go along with this. And now saying, well, now I'm not confident that there's a season that's kind of posturing in the other direction where he's hoping that there will Which be... Is just <laughs> Like, yeah. again, like the, the notion of that, like if that is further negotiation, the idea that that is worth the negotiation to, as a commissioner of your own sports, say, we're right. not going to, we might not play. Like <laughs> that is so hard to wrap my mind yeah, around. That you'd but, even be yeah. in that situation but it could, is but not you, great. It could be, it does make some sadly logical sense. I think yeah. the thing I keep coming back to, Ben, is like, if the three of us who, you know, have dedicated a unhealthy portion of our time in life <laughs> to this sport are tired and disinterested. Mm -hmm. What the hell does that mean for a casual fan? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's really nothing I think MLB could do to drive us away forever. Although at this point, my enthusiasm is kind of at an all-time low. It's yeah. hard to really be a booster of baseball right now, given the way things are going. But look, I'm hooked. I think we're all hooked for life probably, right? But the casual fan who is just kind of dipping in and out, I wouldn't blame them for being out at this point. Yeah. And, you know, whether they have the facts or not, whether they blame the players or the owners, I think just the whole situation looks terrible and reflects poorly on the sport. I still think if I had to bet, I would guess that there will be Major League Baseball played this year just because 
the alternative is so disastrous and would be such a, a terrible stain on the sport. And if we're just talking about money, I think whatever agreement you come to, it, it would be more profitable or less unprofitable to play some number of games than to not play any games and to have a lingering effect where everyone hates baseball for the next five years. So I would hope that they all realize, and particularly the owners in Manfred realize, that this brinksmanship is only hurting themselves and that even if they do have to kind of crawl back to the table, it's better than the alternative. The wild card, though, is COVID, right? And is the possibility that the season starts and has to stop or that things worsen to the point where they're not able to start for legitimate safety reasons. And so it's entirely possible that we could get a last second buzzer beating economic agreement and then COVID comes in and cancels everything, which COVID just be... <laughs> from the top row. <laughs> exactly. So let's hope there's baseball under some circumstance where we can actually enjoy baseball and not feel bad about either the way that we got to that point or the players putting themselves at risk to yeah. give us our bread and circuses. Ben, thank you for joining us. We know how much you hate predictions. So before you leave, who is going to win the 50-game MLB season? <laughs> World Series. I, yeah, World yeah. Series champion. Gosh, I want to go Orioles, I think. <laughs> that would be the perfect perfect way for this to end, right? Just like the worst team oh, flukes yes. into a weird World Series win. I'm 100% confident that it will be the Baltimore Orioles. Well, Ben, don't that. change your mind in five days. Uh, thank you <laughs> for coming on, Ben. My pleasure, mostly. Thanks, guys. And we are back here on Baseball Barbecue. I'm Jordan Schusterman. That's Jake Mintz. And it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by three-time World Series champion, the PA announcer for the San Francisco Giants, Rennell Brooks-Moon. Rennell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for that fantastic introduction, and thanks for having me, you guys. Do you wear your rings around? I do. I don't wear all three of them at the same time. But I, you know, I do it mainly for special events that I'm hosting or special days at the ballpark. But other than that, they're in safety, a safety deposit box. I've only worn all three of them simultaneously. And that was I was honored at John's Grill here in San Francisco as the first woman to, uh, you know, make this uh, to achieve this. And they had a luncheon for me. All the trophies were there. And so I wore all three. My husband says I should wear all three all the time. But that's oh, not my yeah. jam. How could you? I how would. Could you not? It seems it seems like it would be a bit a bit of a hazard, but we we understand that you have the option to uh, to alternate between rings. So, uh, Rennell, you've you've been with the Giants now now for twenty years, but we know that your your baseball journey stretches back long before that. So, um, before we get into our our main conversation, why don't you give us a little bit of a background about your life as a baseball fan and as a baseball person? I was literally born into it. And I, and I say that because mother was pregnant with me in 1958 when the Giants moved out West. So I was literally born into being a baseball fan and a Giants fan. But uh, I just come from a family that loves sports in general, but baseball in particular. It goes back to my granddad uh, in Texas, who uh, was a big fan, obviously, of Negro League Baseball, passed his love and passion of the sport down to my mom. And uh, taught her how to score, and and she passed that passion on down to me. My dad, uh, in addition to being an educator, coached football. My brother had dreams of playing Major League Baseball. He wanted to be, well, he really wanted to be Sandy Koufax. But I said, I can't say that because I'm the Giants announcer. Can I switch it to Juan Marichal if, just for, you know, all intents and purposes? <laughs> Good but, edit you know, there. Good edit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> But I still remember so vividly, you know, being a little girl, like seven, eight, nine, my brother's eight years older than me, you know, going down to the Central Valley in Stockton and watching all of his tournaments in the summer, going to Candlestick in the summer and then to the Coliseum. Uh, I was 10 when the, when the A's came here and it's just always been such a part of my family dynamic. So for me to be doing this job is mind blowing. Are you kidding me right now? <laughs> So, and I, I love 
I, I just love that you are still feeling that, right? Like you've been doing this for 20 years and you still are waking up like, oh my God, this is, and we can sort of relate to that too. It's like, oh, we get to talk about baseball. This is amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I really do still pinch myself a lot because I feel so fortunate and so blessed. Everything that I've been able to experience in the 20 years at the ballpark. And, you know, you get hired for this job. You're not expecting, I certainly wasn't expecting a postseason in the first season. I'm not, I'm not thinking about rings or if, by the way, I didn't even know I was going to get a ring. I mean, who, I just, you know, I'm not thinking rings and, you know, I got to do the all-star game, all this. And it just is, it just keeps going. Like, you know, getting to know both of the willies and all the things I've been able to host at the ballpark. I mean, it just, it really does keep getting better and more magnificent. And I'm just grateful every day. So you have seen a lot. You have experienced a lot. We are currently in the middle of, of a, of a, of a national moment where conversations about anti-blackness and police brutality have, you know, entered the public discourse in a way that we've never really seen before. And traditionally, as I'm sure you've experienced, baseball does not like to acknowledge its own racist past, and it does not like to even discuss issues of race, gender, sexuality at all. The amount of outspokenness that we have seen from players on these issues in the last couple of weeks, is that truly unique compared to you know everything that you have seen both in your life and in your career? I think it's unique in the fact, just the fact that we're living in this time of technology and, and social media and players have a platform that they can use now more, more than, more so than ever before. But there have always been, there's always been activism in baseball and in sports in general, but this new platform allows these young guys, um, a whole different arena to really, to really get their point across. I mean, I appreciated the video that they did, but also the fact that a lot of them are just speaking up on their own social media platforms completely on their own and really you know sharing their true life experiences that that's something we probably wouldn't have heard you know a few decades ago and are really passionate and emotional and really giving us suggestions for change and what people can do so you know this whole moment does feel really different to me i i'm a 61 year old black woman i in my entire life have experienced the dynamic of race and power and race and sexism. And I have dealt with it my entire career, not just in baseball, but in radio also. I did 35 years of radio before I, um, before, well, maybe 25 years before I got the job with the Giants. And, you know, it's great to see so many people speaking out, but here's the thing. We've been doing this as long as I've been alive. You know what I mean? And it's like all of a sudden now people want to have the conversations that we have been asking for, for, gener for generations. And you know what, guys? It's, I'm not going to lie. It is, it's, been ex it's been exhausting because we have been saying this. We've been trying to have these conversations and now you guys are ready and now we have to be a voice or the voice, you know? And it's, it's, it's frustrating. But I also am hopeful that this is a moment in time like none I've ever seen in my life, you know, for baseball, for sports and for the country. So it definitely feels different for me right now. But and I've struggled in my role in baseball for the last 20 years in a lot of ways that I, you know, I'm not really able to publicly share. But throughout my entire career, it has always been my mission. And I've been the first a lot. So it's always been my mission to not be the last and to do what I can in my way to make some change. I want to ask what you say, like, we're ready to have this conversation now. And I think that is at a completely like really important point. How do you balance the exhaustion and frustration of finally having two white men like Jordan and I? invite you onto a podcast with the acknowledgement that, you know, having this conversation does have the opportunity to push something forward. Yeah. Well, I, 
yeah, it's a, it's a fine line to walk. And I appreciate, don't get me wrong. I appreciate that everyone wants to have these conversations right now, particularly my white colleagues, and my white counterparts. I appreciate it, but you all have to understand that it's a burden we've been carrying for a long time. We've been begging for these conversations, but it's, it's, I mean, but it's also a, it's also a positive. And these are as exhausted as, as black and brown folks are right now, as tired as we are, especially for black people, as tired as my husband and I are watching these videos. We've been watching it as long as we, you know, since we were kids, as tired as we are, we understand that we do have a responsibility in this moment to have these conversations and to have the difficult conversations. It just you guys reaching out to me, I appreciate. And I've had so many other colleagues reach out to me. And that's a start because silence is not going to work. Silence for us is like you're complicit as well. So this is a place to start. But it is tough. And, and, the, and the job that I hold in Major League Baseball and what we've been dealing with these last couple of weeks, I'm in a really tough position. And I've really yeah. been, I've been, I'm like caught in the middle here. You know, and I have an employer who I may have some issues with that I can't be as vocal as I would like to be about it. So some some certain donations that may or may not have dude occurred. Dude, yes. Yes, indeed. But yeah, it's and I, I am a voice. I'm not the voice. I'm not an expert. I'm not a historian. I'm just I just know my lived experience and how challenging it has been for me and try to use my experience and share that with you guys and others to, to create some awareness that you all may not have had before. I mean, one thing I've been telling folks for the last three weeks that want to have these conversations is, well, can you just imagine like never having a boss that looks like you? Just, you know, let me just put that out there. And I've been working for 35 years. I had two African-American bosses in radio in a 35-year career, one at the beginning, one at the end. And in my 20 years at the ballpark, all my bosses have looked the same. Can you imagine in your whole career not seeing anybody that looks like you in a decision-making role, in an executive position, in a management position? Yeah, I mean... I mean, Obvi- I, we, obviously we for can't. us, <laughs> yeah, and that's that's exactly that's exactly the problem. And I wanted to to get back to a point you made. Just is right. It's 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 exhausting. It shouldn't be your responsibility. Um, and it's so it's so difficult because as I'm I'm reading about your background and like you are such an incredible outlier to the degree that on one hand I'm like, wow, Renell Brooks Moon is incredible. I cannot believe. I'm so glad we have her. But it's like. We need a hundred more Rennell Brooks moons, but I'm also like, we have to talk to the one that we have. And yeah. so it's, it's a real challenge in that balance is, is you as, as a, as a black woman in baseball, which of course is even more rare, um, yeah. at such a high level. Um, so talking about that specifically, I, I'm sure you've gotten this question many times, but how do you navigate that side of it too? Uh, the, the sport, which has just been so predominantly white and male for, uh, at every level, up and down from ownership, down to the field and down to the broadcast booths, um, how have you kind of navigated both of those uh, spheres? Jordan, the way that our producer Bobby put it earlier was like the only thing that matches baseball's ingrained racism is its toxic masculinity. Right. right. Boom. There you go. Yes. That's a nice mic drop. Thank you for yeah. that, Bobby. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. Yes. And so how you're, you have to, you're dealing with both. So. Yeah, it's, it's tough, man. And again, I have to go back to my radio career. I was like one of the first women of color to have a, a, my own morning show. And that was also a struggle, but getting, getting this job in baseball, knowing the history, knowing the past, first of all, I was incredibly honored. And then I also understood the responsibility that came with it. And yeah, the three world series rings are fantastic. The, you know, all the, all my heroes and icons I've been able to meet and the things I've been able to do are fantastic. But the most important thing about what I do is that it's it's bigger than me 
This job has always been bigger than me. It means so much to my community, again, given the history of baseball and racism. It means so much to women. It means so much to little girls. And just by me being in that booth or on TV or you know, wherever I'm visible, just having a, a fraction of the population that has never seen or worked with somebody that looks like me that's already a shift that, and you know what I mean? And, and that's, and that's a big deal. And it's been a, it's been a really tough balance, but knowing that this job is bigger than I am, what it means to so many women in particular. And for me, I've, I was the only woman in our entertainment department when I got hired in 2000, no shock there, right? No shock at all. and. I obviously was concerned about how I was going to be received by a certain portion of the fan base. I was confident that I had a lot of, you know, folks that had listened to me on the radio and knew that I loved this sport, knew this sport, loved this team, respected the team. But I also knew there's a faction of the fan base that didn't know anything about me and were, quite frankly, resistant to me, you know, in the beginning. Um, so I've just always been committed from day one to make sure that my whole career, I have to work two times, three times harder to be accepted. But more importantly than that, that I can be a role model for, for women of color and young women that want to get into sports broadcasting, that I can hopefully make a difference in, um, in the hiring of women and people of color in my department you know, in the years to come, that's because I'm in this position. So I use it to, to try and, and make change. And what's been wonderful over the years, I've had older white guys, senior white guys um, come up to me when they see me at the ballpark and truly, literally articulate to me, I was not sure about you. I couldn't accept you in the beginning, but right now I cannot imagine a game without your voice. And when I hear that, I'm like, okay, I'm doing like my that's job. Something, that's right? also super discouraging uh, on one hand, but like it is well, an evidence of the needle moving because of your efforts. It is, but I can't let it be discouraging for me because that's my whole life. That's my whole existence. And not just mine, what my parents went through growing up in the Jim Crow South. I mean, it's just, that's why I say black folks were just exhausted. <laughs> We're exhausted from all of this that people are now starting to, to see and really take a minute and understand it. So I can't be discouraged by it. In fact, it makes me hopeful. The other thing that has made me hopeful over the years is, especially in the, the beginning, the early years, little boys, little white boys would wait for me to show up at the ballpark so I could sign their gloves or their caps, or they would give me their little league cards. I'm talking they're five, six, seven, eight years old. In 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, my gender nor my race, they could have cared less. They were just excited to see the voice of the ballpark. So I have to be hopeful when these things, and change is slow, especially when it comes to race in this country. Change is slow, but I have to be hopeful. And the thing that really keeps me hopeful, you guys, is um, my mom is 94. My mom wow. has completely lived through it. I was like, really? You, my mother has to now live through a pandemic. Has she not seen enough? Are you kidding me right now? Oh, man. Yeah. It's like the one last thing she hasn't gotten to. Exactly, right? So, but she is extraordinary. And if my mother, who, by the way, at 94, has an iPad and an iPhone and you know, walks every morning for 30 minutes and texts with emojis and everything and was a career educator and you know, a mom and a grandma... If my mother is still hopeful, then I have to be too. She inspires me every day. She has never been defeated. She has never lost hope. And so that's what I come from, you know, how my parents raised me and what I saw, you know, going back to Texas and Arkansas to see my grandparents in the summertime. I mean, I'm old enough that I saw colored signs water fountains and bathrooms and stuff. I was a little girl, but it's ingrained in my memory. So although it's challenging, what keeps me going is the shoulders on which I stand. 
which is not just my trailblazing daddy, who you may or may not know was the first African-American high school principal in San Francisco. Uh, not my, you know, all, in addition to my grandparents, not just in my own family, but the Negro, Negro League players on the shoulders on which I stand. Um, and, and Jackie and Larry Doby and Kurt Flood. That's, I am committed to them. I want to continue the work that they've all done. That's my responsibility, challenging though it may be in these times and straddling both of those worlds. But I have to be encouraged by the little bits of progress I've seen along the way. And again, change is slow when it comes to this. So little bit of progress. Don't get me wrong. There are many battles I've had to fight along the way too, which would blow your mind if I could really go there. But yeah, one day. Yeah, one day. Uh, I want to ask you more about the Negro Leagues. Um, I think it is, I hope it is, evident for a lot of people why it is important to keep the history of that league alive, right? Yeah, yeah. But what are some lessons from the Negro Leagues that people aren't learning, that people haven't gotten, that you think need to be more uh, understood by Major League Baseball, by teams, and by white players? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is how many amazingly gifted and talented players that played in the Negro Leagues that never got a shot to play in Major League Baseball. And, you know, no disrespect, no offense to all of the great players over the years, but for, you know, for my community, we look at a lot of players and we're like, okay, they, come on, we're far superior didn't get the opportunity and i would encourage every baseball fan to um to do your research about the negro league museum in uh, in kansas city which i got to visit uh during that world series and i learned stuff that i didn't even know you know um it, it was an amazing amazing experience and they're on twitter and there's so many things to learn there's so many things to look up and learn and really if i mean it's cliche but if we don't know our past how are we gonna move ahead to our future but for me it's just the and and again because baseball really is a metaphor for life and baseball parallels you know the racism in this country and for me it's just like you know it's not just baseball there are so many other walks of life that so many people don't know, don't know about the accomplishments of so many African-Americans for generations. And so that's what resonates for me about the Negro League Museum. And I got to do a piece while I was there with the director and, and it was just, it was just phenomenal. But I I guess, again, to, to answer that question is there, there are so many players that you need to know about that never got a shot. And, and and we, I was just gonna say we like to say yeah. baseball before Jackie. Yeah, it doesn't care. even count. <laughs> Don't does that's not baseball. Like that, that's not it's not the same sport. Like you're not playing against the best players. Those aren't the best that's players right. in the world. So yeah. Get the hell get the hell out of here, Roger Rogers Hornsby. Like Josh yeah. Gibson would have kicked your that's ass. What like I'm go saying. home. That's exactly yeah. right. it's exactly what I'm saying. And you know my my family, uh, mom and daddy, and uh, they were Dodgers fans, obviously because of Jackie. Uh, first, and then when the Giants moved out here in '58, mother quickly shifted her allegiance. So. <laughs> but I mean, that was Black America then. Every Black American was a Dodger fan when Jackie broke the color line. But there, there's, there's so much more to learn, you know, beyond Jackie and so many other greats. And I encourage everybody to check that out. They, I mean, I, I'll just give a plug here. They're doing seminars. The New yeah. Leagues museums every, I think it's like every couple of weeks on Saturday mornings. Yeah. They're just like big zoom calls and they're doing really cool presentations. So it's everyone should so, go check them so out. It's so important. Yeah, definitely. It's so important. It's awesome. You mentioned Jackie and I want to talk a little bit about like one of the bigger gripes I think people have with the way the league has handled race is almost using Jackie as a shield yeah. um, and not confronting the issues that still exist going on right now is that something that you think goes on a little bit yeah oh quite quite definitely yeah and you know it's been it's been discouraging even before i got you know 
got hired to work for, for baseball. Um, it just feels like there's been a lot of missed opportunities, a lot of wasted time. And, you know, and even in this situation where it took MLB, what, eight, nine days to make a statement <clears throat> after the George Floyd murder, you know, and you're the league of, of Jackie, you're the league again of, uh, you know, of Larry and of, and of Kurt Flood and, you know, all these amazing African-American athletes that have contributed to your sport and it takes you eight, nine days so that, in a nutshell, says to me how, how much more work has to be done. I mean, because for me, I was like, I, I, and I waited, and I waited, and then I'm waiting, and I'm trying to figure out how do I deal with this on social media? I got to be careful. But I was like, come on, man. Come on. I, it's like, it, for me, day one, I, I would have liked to have seen a statement, a statement that wasn't hollow a statement that really took action. And if nothing else, the first thing you could say is we're reaching out to the Jackie Robinson foundation. It's right. It's right there. That could have been your very first phone call or first um, active donation or, 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 or action in the first place. So for me, the way this has been handled, you know, I wish I could say, it doesn't really surprise me because of what you just said, the, the history of how it's been dealt with in the game. And then, like I said, I've been, I've been dismayed even before, you know, I worked for the Oakland A's for a bit before I even got hired with the Giants. So even before I started working with the Giants, I've been like, well, you know, the lack of, the lack of black managers, the lack of black executives, the, you know, the lack of, you know, black coworkers in my department. Um, but, and then again, it just, you know, baseball is, uh, is not different than any other industry. The systemic racism that has been going on in my lifetime alone um, is what's really coming to light here for a lot of people, particularly of your generation, that may have never really understood it. So it's sad that they haven't, for me, taken, taken the baton as strongly as they should have. But it also speaks to almost every other industry in this country, which is... So disheartening. What does the league need to do? What tangible steps do they need to do to improve the conditions for black players and to improve the conditions for black women working in other aspects of the game? Yeah. You know, I, again, I'm, I'm no expert when it comes to this. I just try to make change in my, in my own way. I, I speak out when I see something that doesn't really rest well with me. Um, my whole career, I, I've, I've spoken out, I've been vocal about changes that need to happen. And it often falls, not often, it always falls on, on deaf ears. Right. Um, and it always falls on you. Yeah, it, right. it, it, it does. It does. But, you know, again, every, you know, the, the, the lack of, um, the fact that kids, that black kids don't want to play baseball, just, it just breaks my heart. And, um, you know, I know there've been efforts, you know, with the RBI program and everything, but there's, there's got to be, and I don't have the answer, but there's got to be a better way to do increased community outreach and get kids excited about baseball again. But <laughs> but first we got to start playing again. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, there's also the fact that baseball isn't happening for anybody right now. <laughs> right, so, right, right. So. But and for me, what, what hurts me the most is the history that this sport has mm -hmm. with black Americans. Right. And the fact that there are so few black players right now. So, you know, what two executives, uh, Tony Clark as well in the league office, but two team executives and, you know, and the fact that in 2020, there's two black managers. Are you kidding me? And only one, and one of them is only there because, you know, the old guy cheated. <laughs> yes. And then right. there's that. And right. then there's that. Right. Yeah. So, um, but again, I, I don't have all the answers. I can only use my voice to make change. And I've spoken up in, in my entire career about the lack of representation and, um, boardrooms needs to change ownership needs to change you know uh you know again the executive positions like i was saying my whole career i've rarely worked for an executive that looks like me and i i 
I don't know how to get us there, but I do know that I will certainly work together with them to try and get us there. That's, that's a big part of my responsibility in my role, but there's so much work to be done. And that's something else that's really kind of exhausted me over these last couple of weeks. It's like, dear gosh, where do you start? Exactly. Where where do you start? Exactly. But we start here. We at least start start with having Mm -hmm. these conversations. And Mm -hmm. I, I didn't even know we had a diversity and inclusion council at the, at the giants. I didn't, I didn't even know that I, you know, and, and I, I also have to speak to the fact that I don't work in the front office, not giving anybody a pass. Don't get me wrong, not giving anybody a pass, but I don't work in the front office. And really my job initially was a part-time job. It kind of made it a full-time year-round position, but it's my job now to be active with that council that I just learned about. And it's my job to be more active with the front office. And for me, I've been kind of sitting, waiting for them to come to me for 20 years you know, I've offered my services in various ways. I've offered suggestions for African-American Heritage Night. I've offered suggestions about hiring everything. It's not always been well-received uh, or received at all. But at this point, it's my job to now, because they don't know how to reach out to me. So now I got to get in there, you know, roll up my sleeves to get in there. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, the, the Giants are so lucky to have you. And I'm sure once the Thank you. kids were asking for your autographs, they're like, oh, we should probably make her full time. Probably make her. Let's pay her more. Renaud, we have we have one final question for you. Um, just try to end on somewhat of a lighter note. And as we just mentioned, this baseball in general is in a very weird place right now for oh, a lot of reasons oh, that we've God. talked about in separate conversations. We don't have to go into that with you. But <laughs> uh, looking forward, let's hope baseball comes back. But maybe baseball is going to be happening in empty stadiums. I hope you are still there and able to be one of the few essential personnel that gets to be in the stadiums, if that is the case. What is it going to be like if you announce games in an empty stadium. Have you given thought to this at all? I, I have. I've been thinking about it a lot. And I and it's so funny. A lot of people were saying, well, are, are, when it comes back, are you going back? I was like, I don't know. I've heard from no one. I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know. But it, uh, last week, I did have a conversation with uh, management letting me know that when and if we come back, I am an essential worker, so I will be at the ballpark. But even before I had that conversation, I kept saying to my husband, I go, okay, no fans. Do we play walk-up music? Do we run rally videos? Do we play music in between <laughs> innings? I mean, what's going to go on the scoreboard between innings? I, I just, I, all I know is I'm going to be there. I don't know. And I'm really concerned about the rest of my crew, which shout out to them because a lot of them are out of work right now, you know, and which breaks my heart. So, so I'm hoping that's going to get a way to get some of my kids. They call me Mama R. I'm the oldest one in the department, so I call them my kids. I'm hoping my kids will be able to come back to work. The other thing, too, is I am a senior citizen, and so I'm in a risky group for this pandemic. Let me just say that. I don't mean to laugh, make light of it, but the booth is extremely tiny. <laughs> and yeah. I share it that's with like... Point five other people okay like the dj our uh, manager of in-game entertainment uh two uh audio guys and and i was like wait a minute now and then i thought yesterday i go well there won't be any fans in this st- i can do it from behind home plate i oh, can just so cool wouldn't that Sit be on awesome? the dugout on top when's of the, dugout? the last time you when's the last time you watched a game from behind home plate or like from the outfield um, not, I mean, I have to watch a game as a fan elsewhere, not at, not at our ballpark at all. It's never, ha- and, and you know what guys, that's the thing I miss the most about, I, I will, until I retire, I'll never be able to enjoy a game at Oracle Park, you know? Um, so I, I've been, I go to a lot of A's games cause you know, I still, I'm still an Oakland girl at heart, still love my A's. And again, my sports broadcasting career started with, with the A's. So I love to go to Oakland. I love to go to visiting ballparks because there's nothing better to me, especially in the summertime, than getting your game on. You know, I was going to ask you, wh- like, what do you miss the most right now? You know what? I really miss them. I miss my crew. I miss my my work husband. We're the oldest. We're like the same age. We're like the parents of the department. 
I miss the fans because we have, they have so embraced me in this last probably decade in particular in a way that I didn't see coming. And it's a beautiful, beautiful relationship. Of course, I, of course I miss the game itself, but for me in these last 20 years, it's really about the relationships that I have made because you guys know how long those days are at the ballpark. I mean, I get there four hours before first pitch. The crew has already been there, you know, filming stuff and interviewing, doing interviews and stuff to air during the game. Uh, And it's just long, long days, long hours. One after it's a long, long grind. And so we really are a family and thank God we all do get along and enjoy each other. (laughs) Look, you know, the job is only as good as you pe- as the people you do it with, right? So I'm so, so lucky. And, you know, over the years, I've announced many, you know, uh, wedding parties for a lot of the kids that I work with. And they get married. I introduce the wedding party. I've been to baby showers. I've been to birthdays of new babies and everything. So I really, really miss miss my family at the ballpark because we, we spend so much time together. But And I do, I have to say, I, miss, I do miss being on the microphone. My poor husband. I'm like, I'm just trying to find things that'll keep me occupied. But I'm like, babe, if this happened, I would say this. <laughs> or, or if I was on the radio this morning, this is what I would be talking about. So there are times when I really miss right. that microphone because that microphone has been in my hand for 35 years. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. We need to get you back in front of a mic. I hope this does some percentage of letting you talk. My goodness. Um, I I have a I have one dumb, silly question. Is there a name that you have announced over the years that sticks out to you that you love to say? Oh, yes. I get this question a lot. Okay, Jared Saltalamakia. Oh, my God. Jared Saltalamakia is fantastic. Nomar Garcia Hara. I would always pause. Garcia Hara. And Gerardo Hara, I paused for him as well. He seems to enjoy it. Um, When Coco Crisp would lead off for Oakland, I don't know why I do this dramatic pause thing. I've been now leading off for Oakland, number four, Coco Crisp. I take this long pause. And Chris. one time he looked up and smiled at me in the booth. It was oh. so fantastic. Oh, I, my I love the idea. Like when, a, when the giants call up a new player, you're like, I hope there are a lot of syllables. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> the other thing oh. when they're, when he's making his major league debut, yeah. I've wrestled with, uh, you know, I want to say that, but I also at the same time don't want to freak him out. That's the mother right. instinct to me. Right. You know, and now making his major league debut. Like, ah. I got to say, yeah. I got to say, Mike Yastrzemski must have been pretty exciting for you. That must have been, Dude, I mean, wow, how fortunate. I, I got goosebumps. And I, when I finally met him a couple weeks later, I was like, never in a million years did I think that was going to be a name that I would announce in the booth. That, oh and God. yeah, and what a he's fantastic too. What a great young man he is. But yeah, Salsa Lamaki has always been my favorite. And more recently, Adani Echeverria, mm, which doesn't that's a, that's a really good one, but it doesn't look like that at all when you first right. look at it. <laughs> <laughs> like, and what I what I do, what I've always done is I go to the visiting broadcasters down the hall to if I have any questions about pronunciations. And now I've I'm like, we're all like homies now. They, you know, we're all like, we have a great relationship and everything. And in recent years, I've had a, a few of them say, you know, you're, you're so consistent and we appreciate your work ethic. And by the way, there's never been a PA announcer that has ever come and asked us how to pronounce a player's name. It's like, <laughs> that's the whole gig. Like you would think that other PA announcers, I'm not trying right? to take away from your credit here, but it's like, that's the whole thing. Wouldn't you want to get that right? I exactly right. I was like, so what? You're just gonna wing it. And for me, it's an honor and a uh, privilege to be on that microphone. Course. And it's of their course. moment. I mean, I even do the same thing for the ceremonial first pitch. Whoever's, I'm like yeah. double check the the name, the pronunciation. I don't want to mess up their moment. I don't know right. why. I don't know what that for me is a is a no brainer. 
Oh, again, I mean, I there's a million it. reasons why Rennell's the best if you have not already been convinced. But thank you. Clearly, it's like she's also doing the <laughs> obvious things extremely well. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Rennell, thank you so much for taking time out of your day and uh-huh. coming on this pod and being honest and being forthright and just generally being a badass all the time. <laughs> thank you. Um, I hope. I am able to hear your voice inside a stadium very soon. Oh, yes. From your lips to God's ears. All right. Thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed both of those conversations. Quick update on programming. If there is any monumental, major, earth-shattering baseball news, we will be back with a pod if anything happens. Will it? I don't freaking know. <laughs> don't ask us. Ask Ben Lindbergh. But we will be back with a pod in that case. But you can also expect uh, a conversation next week, a couple more conversations about issues of race and baseball with our friends Preston Wilson and Lucas Giolito. Those will be coming out next week. Jordan, will there be a season? Yes or no? Yes. I think so, too. See everybody next week. Bye. Bye.